Hello and welcome to the 15 Minute Book Club with me, your host, David Wears, ably assisted as always by Junior Underlibrarian Wilson. Good evening, David. Good evening. And brought to the world through the miracle of steam technology by Keeper of the Pigeon Crease, El Gavster. After last week's meandering pre- preamble, I thought we'd get down to the topic of this week's show straight away. Because this week we're going to talk about a short novel about a relationship between a girl of questionable lifestyle and a boy who might just be gay, in which nothing much really happens and there's no happy ending. Yes, we're talking about Breakfast at Tiffany's by Truman Capote. Capote was born in 1924 and he began writing stories at a young age of about 8 years old. He came to public attention in 1945 with the publication of a short story for which he earned 1500 and using that money he funded the writing of his first novel or the voices of the rooms which became a bestseller in the next decade he wrote novels plays musicals journals and in 1958 he wrote a very short novel called breakfast at tiffany's and after some hesitation by harper's bazaar who were concerned about the content it was actually published in the november 1958 edition of esquire magazine after which it was published by random house the novel marked a turning point in Capote's career as a writer. I would say it marked a high point, after which he didn't do anything quite as good, but it also launched the character of Holly Golightly on, upon the world. The novel itself is only about 91 pages long, and it's probably best classed as a novella. Personally, I think it's one of the best novels of the 20th century, and its brevity is no fault. Short novels can be perfect. Uh, Animal Farm, Can We Roar? Bonjour Tristesse, which we did last week. They're all short novels and no less fantastic for that. And Breakfast at Tiffany's really is an excellent novel. Norman Mailer uh, said of Capote in this novel, he was the most perfect writer of my generation, which is no small praise from the pugnacious Take No Prisoners Mailer. The story itself revolves around the memories of an unnamed narrator about the time he spent in a Manhattan apartment with his neighbour, Holly Golightly, a socialite with no visible means of support, but a number of wealthy suitors who fund her lifestyle and one of whom she hopes to marry. The novel begins with a note of wistfulness of looking back. and I'll just read this little quote. I am always drawn back to places where I have lived, the houses and their neighbourhoods. For instance, there is a brownstone in the East 70s where during the early years of the war, I had my first New York apartment. It was a one room, crowded with attic furniture, a sofa and fat chairs upholstered in that itchy, particular red velvet the one associates with hot days on a train. The walls were stucco and a colour rather like tobacco spit. Everywhere, in the bathroom too, there were prints of Roman ruins freckled brown with age. The single window looked out on a fire escape. Even so, my spirits heightened whenever I felt in my pocket the key to this apartment. With all its gloom, it was still a place of my own. The first, and my books were there, and jars of pencils to sharpen. Everything I needed, so I felt, to become the writer I wanted to be. It never occurred to me in those days to write about Holly Lightly, and probably it would not now, except for a conversation I had with Joe Bell, that set the whole memory of her in motion again. That introduces Holly into the writer's world, but it's only when, in the middle of the night, 
a girl arrives in a brownstone, tipsy, waking the neighbours because she has once again forgotten her door key, that he actually meets her. And again, I'll read a little quote from this. I'd been living in the house about a week when I noticed that the mailbox belonged to apartment 2 had a name slot fitted with a curious card. Printed rather cartier formal, it read, Miss Holiday Go Lightly, and underneath, in the corner, Travelling. It nagged me like a tune, Miss Holiday Go Lightly Travelling. One night, it was long past twelve, I woke up with the sound of Mr Yuniyoshi calling down the stairs. Since he lived on the top floor, his voice fell through the whole house, exasperated and stern. Miss Golightly, I must protest. The voice that came back welling up from the bottom of the stairs was silly young and self-amused. Oh darling, I am sorry. I lost the goddamn key. You cannot go on ringing my bell. You must please, please have yourself a key made. But I lose them all. I work, I have to sleep, Mr Unio, she shouted. But always you are ringing my bell. Oh, don't be angry, you dear little man. I won't do it again. And if you promise not to be angry... Her voice was coming nearer as she was climbing the stairs. I might let you take those pictures we mentioned. By now I left my bed and opened the door an inch. I could hear Mr Yunioshi's silence. Hear because it was accompanied by an audible change of breath. When, he said. The girl laughed. Sometimes, she answered, slurring the word. Anytime, he said, and closed his door. I went up into the hall and leaned over the banister, just enough to see without being seen. She was still on the stairs now she had reached the landing and the ragbag colours of her boy's hair, tawny streaks, strands of albino blonde and yellow caught the light. It was a warm evening, nearly summer, and she wore a slim, curled black dress, black sandals and a pearl choker. For all her chic thinness, she had an almost breakfast cereal air of health, a soap and lemon cleanness, a rough, a rough pink darkening in the cheeks. Her mouth was large, her nose upturned, a pair of dark glasses blotted out her eyes. It was the face beyond childhood, yet this side of belonging to a woman. I thought her anywhere between 16 and 30. As it turned out, she was two months shy of her 19th birthday. As he gets to know Holly, his, his neighbour, he discovers a night owl, a party animal, disruptive and at times silly, and he learns she is both readily available for the right man with the right money, and yet ultimately completely unknowable. She is flirtatious, fun, headstrong to the point of driven, and yet completely self-contained. She is, as, as Caporty said of her, a form of geisha. You might buy her time and her presence, but you don't buy her. In the novel, the narrator spends a year getting to know Holly, and, he, and she does open up to him, but in the end she leaves, and their relationship is unconsummated, physically and emotionally, because she never fully reveals herself. Holly is that girl. She's the, she's the girl you love at, at a distance, but you never get together with. Holly is a schoolboy crush, the girl who, when you're 18, is just too cool to approach, and when you're 30, you're sort of glad you didn't. She's an archetype. She's the one who isn't tamed. Her relationship with the men who appear for her lifestyle is precarious, sometimes dangerous, and often a little sad. There's a hollowness to her existence that the narrator and the reader want to fill, and one evening, escaping the attentions of yet another suitor, she appears at the fire escape window. Our acquaintance did not make headway until September, an evening with the first ripple chills of autumn running through it. I'd been to a movie, come home and gone to bed with a bourbon nightcap and the newest simonin. So much my idea of comfort that I couldn't understand a sense of unease that multiplied until I could hear my heart beating. It was a feeling I'd read about, written about, but never before experienced. That feeling of being watched, 
as someone in the room. Then, an abrupt rapping at the window, a glimpse of ghostly grey. I spilled the bourbon. It was still some a little while before I could bring myself to open the window and ask Miss Golightly what she wanted. I've got the most terrifying man downstairs, she said, stepping off the fire escape into the room. I mean, he's sweet when he isn't drunk, but let him start lapping up the vino and, oh God, kill beast. If there's one thing I loathe, it, loathe it's men who bite. She loosened the grey flannel robe off her shoulder to show me evidence of what happens if a man bites. The robe was all she was wearing. I'm sorry if I frightened you, but when the beast got so tiresome, I just went out the window. I think he thinks I'm in the bathroom. Not that I give a damn what he thinks. The hell with him. He'll get tired. He'll go to sleep. My God, he should. Eight martinis before dinner and enough wine to wash an elephant. Listen, you can throw me out if you want to. I've got a gall barging in on you like this, but that fire escape was damned icy and you look so cosy, like my brother Fred. We used to sleep four in a bed and he was the only one who ever let me hug him on a cold night. By the way, do you mind if I call you Fred? She'd come completely into the room now and she paused there staring at me. I'd never seen her before not wearing dark glasses and it was obvious now that they were prescription lenses for without them her eyes had an assessing squint like a jeweller's. They were large eyes, a little blue, a little green, dotted with bits of brown, very coloured like her hair. And like her hair, they gave out a lively warm light. I suppose you think I'm very brazen, or très fou, or something. Not at all. She seemed disappointed. Yes, you do. Everybody does. I don't mind. It's useful. The narrator is based to a large degree on Capote, just as Holly was probably based on one or more of the number of women he knew when he lived in New York in the 1940s. The narrator holds a platonic torch for Holly. In reality, Truman Capote was openly gay, and the depiction of Holly as frivolous, flirty, secretive, tender, unreliable, was no doubt taken from the women he met in Manhattan in the 1940s. And yet, the various descriptions of her, same for example, her sleek hair short as a young man's, or the ragbag colour of her boy's hair, or a flat little bottom, a skinny girl that walks fat and straight. I've always suspected that the original character on which Holly was based was not one of the many women who have made that claim, but might actually have been, it seems to me, a boy. The concept of Holly Golightly being based on a young man puts an entirely different slant on the story. It adds all the, all the tones, all the notes. It doesn't actually change the essence of it, it just, it just changes the, the angle that we, you might perceive the story from. But whatever the source material, Holly the character has a magnetic appeal. Her reckless approach to life invites people in, but crucially never reveals her true self. Because, of course, Holly is an invention. She's a self-invention. The card on her, on her doorbell says, Miss Holiday Go Lightly, Travelling, which is as much a manifesto, a declaration of intent as a name. But even as a name, it's fictitious. And the narrator describes the deal when he notices a man looking outside his door. It's Doc Golightly, Holly's husband. It turns out that Holly Golightly is in fact poor farm girl Lola Mae Barnes, married at the age of 14 at Doc and who was left behind the drudgery and the responsibility and reinvented herself as a glossy social butterfly for whom every night is a party and life is lived indeed as a holiday. 
A meeting is arranged but Holly, though she is obviously fond of Doc, has no intention of going back to live with him. And after staying up all night talking to Doc, Holly leaves him at the station and goes for a drink with the narrator and they chat with Joe the barman. And I think this, this next bit is quite illuminating. Her face, wan, rather bruised looking in the morning light, brightened. She smoothed her tousled hair and the colours of it glimmered like a shampoo advertisement. I must look fierce, but who wouldn't? We spent the, the rest of the night roaming around in a bus station. Right up to the last minute, Doc thought I was going to go with him. Even though I kept telling him, but Doc, I'm not 14 anymore, and I'm not Lola Mayer. But the terrible part is, and I realised it while I was standing there, I am. I'm still stealing turkey eggs and running through the briar patch, only now I call it having the main reds. Joe Bell disdainfully settled the fresh martinis in front of us. Never love a wild thing, Mr Bell, Holly advised him. That was Doc's mistake. He was, all, he was always looking home wild things. A hawk with a pert wing. One time it was a full-grown bobcat with a broken leg. But you can't give your heart to a wild thing. The more you do, the stronger they get. Until they're strong enough to, to run into the woods or fly into a tree. Then a taller tree. Then the sky. That's how you'll end up, Mr Bell. If you let yourself love a wild thing, you'll end up looking at the sky. She's drunk, Joe Bell informed me. Moderately, Holly confessed. But Doc knew what I meant. I explained it to him very carefully and it was something he could understand. Holly, it seems, is quite aware of the dangers of loving someone like her. The thing about this story is there's no happy ending, there's no resolution. By the end of the novel, Holly is publicly disgraced and then rejected in turn by her favourite suitor. She leaves Manhattan never to return. Unlike in the movie, in the novel there's no closure, there's no romantic denouement, there's only a sense of wistful regret. Because we want to spend more time with her, we want to live in a brownstone apartment in the East 70s next door to Holly. She is quite simply a magical creature, we want the narrator to find her because we want to find her. But he never does and we never do. She is always, forever, unknowable and that sense of longing unknowable Holly are what made the novel great. Breakfast at Tiffany's is about a moment in time, a young man and a kooky neighbour. She's the one that got away. She's the one that was always going to get away. But we can't dream. And on that bombshell, this is David Wears and the 15 Minute Book Club. We'll see you next time for something completely different. Good night.